So we see the social engineering, but it's going to progress even further to the point where that the attackers are no longer just, they're not just going to want your credentials, your passwords, your identity and your accounts. They will become digital versions of you because we're actually creating a lot of digital DNA out there that with enough data sources, you could actually really simulate a real person. I'm George Comedy, and this is First Watch. Today's guest is Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Delinea. We first connected over the topic of natural language understanding, a domain within the broader realm of AI. Joseph has been researching it deeply, and I wanted to know what he thinks about where the technology is today and where it can fit in today's security tooling. We get into the complications posed by human language, how NLU can be weaponized by threat actors, and the broader issues of AI, including marketing buzzword abuse, and how ultimately these advancements can benefit security teams. It's a wide-ranging discussion that should leave you with plenty to think about. So let's get into it. Joseph Carson, welcome to First Watch. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited about today's episode. Um, talking about something that you know is, is kind of close to my heart and research, and uh, I've had a lot of lessons over the years. So I'm really excited to, to be on the podcast and um, uh, I'm excited about uh, this discussion we're going to have uh, today. Absolutely. And uh, let's just kick it off. So when you and I first connected, uh, and I think it was over LinkedIn, you had mentioned mm -hmm. that you had been doing a lot of research into natural language understanding, which for the benefit of our listeners, <laughs> we'll refer to as NLU for the rest of the episode. But I just want to start there. Can you give us kind of a primer on what you've been reading or what you've been researching? You know, what caught your interest in, in this particular arena of AI? Absolutely. I mean, it goes back. It was a, quite a few years ago. I was at a, an event and it was myself and another uh, industry peer. And we got into a very deep conversation about uh, AI, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. and about its progression in cybersecurity. And uh, one of the things we got discussing, we segued into NLU and about its advancements as well and how it's been used. Um, so that was, was kind of, for me, it really kind of, it, it, it kind of struck another kind of, you know, uh, idea in my mind because mm -hmm. I go back for years. Um, so I've been in the industry close to 30 years and it stuck to me some things that I was actually learning from, from the past. So, um, and it got me really excited about some of the potentials and some of the things that we can do in the industry. And we're really only touching the surface. Um, I think uh, NLU is, is we haven't really expanded the potential yet. And I think that's really where I got excited about. But I think it's really interesting for the audience. I think it's understanding kind of to talk about some of the kind of backgrounds. When we talk about NLU, natural language understanding, what we're really talking about is the ability to parse natural language. That's mm -hmm. what it is. It's about you know converting um, you, there's a couple of parts. So you've got natural language processing, which is converting it into a machine readable format. And then you get into natural language understanding, which is about understanding the context of what that uh, the, that data is or that text is. And then you've got natural language generation, which is what we're seeing a lot of these uh, conversational bots uh, mm -hmm. that you're having chat bots today. Those are worth generating uh, natural language and response. Uh, so these are some of the kind of the foundations. And most of us might be familiar with things like, you know, the day-to-day -day uses. You might be using Google Translate uh, to translate text into from one language to another. And that's one form of NLU. Uh, you might be looking at even predictive text. When you type in on the search engine, it's already trying to predict what you're mm -hmm. going to say next. Um, that's another form is because it's looking at your, your learning of your previous search history and try to determine what you might be interested to look for. So it's always interesting to go and do that predictive text just to see about what data sources it might be uh, <laughs> right. using on you, which is always a quite quite astonishing because um, we always see the memes on, on social media about, you know, type in this and see what the response is um, and then you know, share it with others. Um, it always gets quite a, a funny response. And then the day-to-day -day stuff where we've seen a lot of the advancements is really into the voice assistants, uh, mm -hmm. where it being Alexa, Siri, Cortana, Google Assistants. Those are all the ones we're familiar with. In the enterprise side of things, um, of course, you know, I just kind of refer to IBM, or of course, they've got uh, the Watson computer, which is right. really one of the more advanced uh, because it's really trying to get into much more automation into things like health diagnostics, into traffic flows, into building cities and, and uh, energy. And there's lots of things that it's looking at in order to try and understand. 
Um, but for me, what we really get into is what Alan will use all about. It's the change where when I was growing up, it was all it was about me learning the language the computer spoke. And mm-hmm. um, what NLU is teaching the computers the language that we speak so they can communicate back to us in a much more familiar, much more understanding way. So that's what's really the, the change here. It's rather than us learning the code of the computers, it's the computers learning the code of us. And this is the big, it's it, it's very complex because um, in the world, you, you look around the world, we have very different languages and just not tied to how we communicate. It's tied to many other senses. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, if you look at Italian speaking, they're very, what's with using their hands. And if you look at the Spanish speaking, they're very much into the passion and the the uses of words. So where we move globally, NLU is very complex because of the difference in cultures, the difference in beliefs, the difference in environments combined with language. So most of the NLUs that we see today, and especially in technology, is really single context-based, which is text-based NLUs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that's where one of the limitations that we've actually uh, created. I don't believe that we'll get to the proper uh, potential of NLU until we explore multiple uh, uh, sources of context. So that's just really, when you get into thinking about, you know, it's, it's really understanding human cognition. It's mm-hmm. about how to understand, uh, how to communicate. And ultimately, today's goals of most tech companies is to create AI agents or bots. And that's where I've seen, at least in the recent years, is much more NLU-based response bots, whether being chatbots or creating content, for example. Um, so for me, it's really kind of, if we are able to crack the NLU code, uh, we need to move beyond that text-based data source into other types of data sources. Uh, because right now, it's to be able to translate, you know, I always look at when we think about some of the history side of things, and we can go back to uh, what is AI. We talk about the, the Turing test um, into you know machines being able to have some type of behavior, a mm-hmm. unique behavior associated to it. And that's where basically the understanding of intelligence is based. Um, I, I believe that's one of the very basic levels. I don't believe that the computers truly understand I think what we've done is we've mathematically programmed to them to have a response that makes us believe that they understand. Right. Um, so you get into comparing the Turing test with uh, what's it called? The Chinese room, mm-hmm. which is where uh, you're trying to communicate in a language that you don't know, but you've got the data all available. And this was actually goes back to the conversation I had with my peer when I was speaking to the conference was all about my interpretation was similar to the Chinese room is that I can have the whole dictionary and history of all of the books in a language, and I could have the construct of that language. Can I learn it without actually being taught from somebody who knows it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you get into is that, and that's where you, I believe that you end up with a text-based level of the Turing test, which means that you've got a very basic level at NLU. I think to get to the next phase, is you had to have interaction. You had to have the environmental side of things, the cultural background, the expression, the emotions that people have when they're talking um, can really change uh, the actually context of an LU. Um, so this is where I really kind of think that we need to look at the multiple levels and we need to think you know, that in the Turing part, it's really that the algorithms are simply just based on maths. I think the Chinese room scenario is really expanding it beyond just the maths and thinking mm-hmm. about other types of context. Um, so this is really where I started getting back into NLU again a few years ago. It was around 2017 after having this in depth. It was a it was a very heated discussion as well because um, mm-hmm. uh, we had very two different opinions on on the topic. Um, on my thoughts was that languages were definitely uh, the basis of where we can learn. Um, and that should be the context of where we can learn. So, so one of my first, my first introductions, right? I mean, I've been in the industry for, you know, since early nineties, it's a long time. <laughs> um, but my first introduction was even before that, um, in the eighties, uh, is when I got my first computer, um, which was an Atari ST 800 XL. Mm-hmm. So really a whole old system. Um, and the programming language then was basic. Yep. And one of the things that I came from a family, originally, I'm, I'm originally from Belfast, from Northern Ireland, but I've been based in Estonia for the last uh, 20 years. But uh, in Belfast, it was very common. People gambled. People did bets. 
And one of the things I was very into at the time was I was very into one is sports and football, soccer, and also into programming computers and gaming. So what I tried to do in order to make a, a program that would actually help me understand what the best bets would be was I created a football learning system. So literally every week I created a program that would you would enter the football scores every single week and who scored and the time they scored. And then based on that, the program that I wrote was trying to predict who would win the next game um, and also who would score in order ultimately kind of, you know, to, to help understand what would be the best bets to make. Um, it wasn't very good. Uh, it, was, it was written I, in basic. Yeah, the I think top, there were some um, limitations in that particular coding language. But There, there was very limitations in it. and uh, But for me, it was a very good learning opportunity. Um, it was a very good kind of trying to get into creating because then there was nothing existed that did that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually probably previous models. I think the previous model that was similar to that was um, by uh, which who was it created it? I'm trying to remember. Um, uh, it was the uh, Wayne Ratcliffe wrote a program that was known as the Vulcan, uh, which basically was a database mm-hmm. that. He wrote the database similar that was it that I was looking at was for football, um, and he did it for American football uh, to do exactly the same thing. Um, and his football, the pools, which was basically the Vulcan database, was renamed later to what we know as DBase. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I used DBase four at some point, you know, university and and learning. Um, but ultimately, the the key thing of the uh, Wayne's uh, program Vulcan was that he actually made it speak. He actually had it where it actually would speak back to you. And the whole mimicking of text, so it would actually be uh, he he tried to create recreate uh, the computer that was in Star Trek uh, that would speak uh, oh, to being right. simulated. So that's where the Vulcan and, and um, similarities to my experience with with my my football program. Um, later, um, this was I, when I got really more into let's say touching the surface. That was really about automation and machine learning and predictive. That's mm-hmm. kind of one of the bases you get to. Later in around, um, what was it, 94, when I was at university, in my early years of university, one of the things that I was watching was the language class were going on all these amazing trips, all expense paid trips to Spain and France. And, <laughs> right. and I was going, I was like, how do we get into that? You know, our computer science class, we, we go nowhere. We, we literally, we don't travel. <laughs> just, the how, just the lab. Just the lab. Just, you know, we get, and we're lucky to get time in the labs because everyone was fighting for time at, you know, um, you can only get an hour a day or, you know, so we really struggled to get access. Of course, I had my own personal computer that I was using at the time. Um, running Windows 3.1 or something. But um, what I wanted to find a way was how can we get to travel the computer class? So I actually went to the language class and basically got us involved in doing a translation program. So one of the things was that we would actually go with the Spanish uh, language class and we started going, the computer class started going with these uh, field trips to Spain. And one of the reasons was that we started writing a basically a Spanish-English translation program um, back in 94. Um, but the problem was that this is when I get into really learning about limitations of NLP mm. then, was that you had to know the exact phrase <laughs> to get the exact English response. Right. So the person had to be taught um, and the phrase had to be exact matching. And we tried doing dynamic matching and context-based matching rules to try and filter out words and try to build it later. Uh, but that was very complex. So for me, you know, learning about that was was very interesting. It was also good learning uh, bases. Um, but it, it kind of got me again into that touching the surface with NLU and seeing what you could potentially do if you had a lot more power mm-hmm. and a lot more basically uh, understanding of the languages as well. Uh, but it did teach me a lot about the, the 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 kind of limitations. And you bring up a you you bring up a good point. Uh, just to interrupt that you know so much of human communication is one extremely dynamic. Basically, all yeah. of the phrases you coded in '94 could have different meanings now, or absolutely, you know, slang has replaced them. <laughs> and then there's uh, the nonverbal. You know, like my family's from Brazil very gesticulatory you can understand a lot without understanding portuguese um 
But I've also lived in Japan where on the surface you would say, oh, the Japanese are much more reserved. They're not as gesticulatory, but there's like a a whole different set of nonverbal cues. Maybe they're quote unquote more subtle, but you you still have to learn that mode, that layer with every language, every culture you're getting. And I think that's the next phase of NLU is basically taking in the visual cues Mm -hmm. um, of communication of language because language is just not in the words. It's in the extra expressions, the emotions. Um, It's like taking, you know, to your point, you could take somebody who speaks Spanish and Portuguese or Italian Mm -hmm. and they get find a way to communicate because of similarities. Um, It's like similar to taking somebody who speaks Estonian and Finnish. Mm -hmm. There's very similarities. And over time, they could, you know, communicate to each other. Um, But a program would fail because it hasn't done that detection. You know, it's based on algorithms and maths. And if you don't build that in, you don't build that learning capabilities in, is that that program will not be able to learn from it. And that's what basically NLU is. We had to make sure we expand. And ultimately, that when they detect something, they can go and find a data set that will help them learn it and then basically become much more advanced. Um, so absolutely, this is where I believe that Turing is just the the very basic, and it Mm -hmm. needs to be expanded. NLU needs to be multi-context based. And therefore, we have to have multiple stages of it in order to actually make sure that there's a learning capability and how to move from one phase to the next phase, whether that's expanding it to visual cues, whether it's expanding it to cultural backgrounds, environmental um, uh, history, because languages evolve over time. Mm -hmm. You could take a snapshot one time and 10 years later, it means something completely different. So also time uh, needs to be factored in, um, which is important. Some of the first languages, I think, um, one of the researchers when I was working in it very early, and especially in the translation program, was from Daniel Bobro. Um, he wrote one of the first kind of references or attempts at an NLU program, which was back in, in the early 60s sometime. And it was based on um, uh, it was uh, word-based algebra. So that basically, rather than saying the number 22 by 10 would be 220, he was putting in the words 22. um, Mm. And then it would actually go and interpret the word 22 uh, into numeric and then do the calculation. So that was really, it was called student, um, if I remember. Um, That was one of the kind of first attempts. And the NLU predated um, everything else. It predated artificial intelligence. It Mm. predated uh, natural language processing. This was really the foundation of the research that Daniel and others did back then that really defined and and, and kind of brought around artificial intelligence in the real terms. Uh, so these were the, some of the predates. It was the foundational research then that actually introduced it um, into a lot of things we're looking at today. Um, the next one, I think, was um, – so that was rules-based logic uh, with some type of interpretation. next one from that was uh, pattern matching um, and response which was the Elizabeth. Uh, so that was in the late 60s, which was uh, I refer to as the psychobot because it was mm-hmm. meant to be a psychologist or psych- <laughs> psychotherapist that was meant to provide you, you know, let's say some uh, therapy <laughs> uh, response. And people didn't really understand it. You know, after a while, you could see that you're just, you're responding and there's response responding. You, know, you could determine that after a while that you're talking to a bot. Just like most chatbots today, when you and as you go to a site and all of a sudden you get a chatbot coming up and you talk to it, you think you're speaking to a human because it's pretending to be a human. Um, but after a few responses, you can automatically know that it's a bot because it doesn't know what to do next. Yeah, I frequently <laughs> encounter that in the uh, airline customer service with, yes. you know, they, they they try to like get you to just use whatever phrase like I need ticketing or whatever, but you just start throwing non sequiturs and it. It cannot. It gets confused. Yeah. And then it it's gets like, confused. All right. right I'll, I'll yeah. route you to an agent. So just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then you realize, well, okay, I've just been wasting my time. <laughs> and then when you get to the agent, um, you hope that they have the history of the communication that you've been trying to attempt. Um, in a lot of cases, they don't. Um, so absolutely, you know, that's a very common uh, thing that we see. Um, even the series, you know, the catch-all, shall mm-hmm. I search the web for you? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, no, I have, I've got questions. I have that. So some of the advancements that we're seeing in this space is really that, you know, the technology um, mm-hmm. kind of focus is around automated kind of decision making. Um, that's where we're seeing NLUs being used uh, into 
machine translations, uh, so translating, uh, you know, machine communications, uh, answering, you know, to the chatbots, uh, question answering. I've got a question, you give me an answer. And those are evolving as they start kind of learning more of the, the vocabulary, but they're very, they need to be uh, taught a lot of times. There's a lot of learning that goes into it and very, you sometimes have to know the syntax that you need to communicate with the bot mm -hmm. uh, to get the response that you want. Again, it's not, that's still us learning text-based commands yes. um, versus- and we are, we, really, are we are conforming to the machine rather correct. than we, it we, we're, we're subsiding to, to going back to speaking computer language rather mm. than it still learning. Um, you know, even, even when I'm speaking, uh, trying to get some of those automated to, to call my wife, um, it confuses and it thinks that I'm, I'm looking for pirates because my wife's <laughs> name is Pirat in Estonian, but uh -huh. it's, it, it goes, uh, you want to call the pirate? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, Pirat. Pirate? I'm like, no, don't call. <laughs> There's no pirate. I'm not trying to call any pirate. So, um, so even just the kind of the understanding in the phrases, you have to teach them in many cases. Um, you've got a lot of text categorization, so you're trying to categorize text into certain kind of structure, which gets into the MP, uh, NLP side of things. You get into mm -hmm. voice activation commands, and, and then content analysis. I've also we've even here uh, at Delinea we've been looking at content creation. Um, we want to write a new article, so here's mm -hmm. five articles that I've wrote in the past. Uh, create new content for me, and then I would review it to see how good it is and how. And it's getting pretty good at actually content creation. Is that um, using like the GPT three model and, and correct? Like that? You're getting yeah. into basically saying here's a here's about ten articles I wrote in the past on this mm -hmm. specific topic, and I want to take out specific focus content so I can give it keywords, mm -hmm. and then it will start creating that content based on my previous writings. Um, so it's pretty impressive. It's getting pretty good to the point where you wouldn't even know that it was actually uh, you know uh, bot created uh, or you know automation uh, using NLU. So again, you know, I think one of the best sources for learning for the audience, um, I definitely recommend going to um, Stanford universities. Uh, they had a, they have a course that's on NLU specifically. And there's a good couple of online resources that I recommend, which is from uh, one of the professors, Christopher Potts and Bill McCartney. Um, Bill actually worked with Google Assistant and also at Apple with Siri. Um, so he's very much into the NLU side of things, and they have a couple of good, really uh, online videos uh, from their course. So this is really good learning to show you some of the history side. Um, but to your point, one of the things that I've get into is the expression. Um, some of the examples is that, you know, if I say good luck, then that can mean one thing. Um, <laughs> if I say good luck, you know, <laughs> or... Good luck. And, you know, all of that, the way the expression and how it's said can change Absolutely. the meaning. And I think that's where NLU is starting to fall on is that it doesn't get the full context. Um, and that's why most NLUs today are context-based. So if you say good luck, it's very specific. It knows what that means. Um, if you think about also double meaning words, um, what I remember with my son uh, speaking with him and saying that he's my son and he's going, what? I'm not like this sun in the sky. Oh, yes. Like, what does mm -hmm. that mean? So, so having words that have multiple meanings can also be very confusing. So, again, that context-based. Um, and there's a lot of slang. If you think about even me being from Belfast, um, some of the slang that they would probably use is things like, uh, if you want to say a girl is good-looking, you say she's smashing. And an AI bot will fall over when you say that, <laughs> <laughs> saying she's smashing. And it gets confused. It's like, what, you want to break <laughs> something? Yeah. You want to, so, and even if you get into, I think, you, uh, one common slang is, what's the damage? Mm -hmm. And it might think that you're in an accident. But actually, what you're asking for is, I would like to get the bill or the invoice, please. That's right. Um, you get into other things that, you know, what about you, we mucker? Means that, you know, how are you doing, my friend? Um, and again, NLUs, well, so they struggle with all of the slang side of things. And we as humans, we like to shorten things. We like to simplify. And we use a lot of, you know, even if you look at a lot of the, the short codes, you know, LOL, mm -hmm. um, uh, CFP, you know, all of those things, they get confused into what does that really mean? Um, so even in, in Irish, the word, if you, if you mix languages together as well, it gets really confused. Oh, um, so in Ireland, we would say, what's the crack? And it'll be like, oh, you know, you're a drug dealer. 
um, but actually the word crack in Irish is fun, but you're combining it with English language, which means what, you know, yeah. do you have any fun or any news, anything funny to say? And that's what the real meaning is. But when you're combining two languages, and we can, we tend to do that, especially like, like yourself, you know, multicultural backgrounds of your um, English speaking, but your parent language might be something else. And you might find that you're, you know, Absolutely. thinking in one language, but speaking another. Um, so that's one of the other things we get into as well as, is the interpretations. Um, so a lot of these things, the commands are so limited that we, we need to kind of, we tend to be teaching humans how to interact, but I believe that the future is really saying, where's my data sources to, to, to make Mm -hmm. an NLU custom to me. And that means that I could, you know, we have a lot of social media feeds and this is the scary part is that if I pointed to my social media, my Facebook, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp messages, even public and non and, and private messages, that's what you're looking at. Is, and that's when I'm talking about the NLUs phases, having multiple data sources. It has my text-based uh, mm-hmm. email, my private messages. It would have access to my social communications, my likes, my interests, my personality. It might have access to my photos. My videos, my audio, my speaking, um, voice, you know, so voice to text recognition. If it gets access to all of those, then you start really getting digital versions of you. Um, and this is where it gets really scary because ultimately what you're starting to see is that we're ha- starting to have our own digital DNA. And, you know, the, the future of attackers and cyber criminals is not stealing your passwords and credentials. It's actually becoming you digital mm-hmm. versions of you. And we see it today with social engineering. We see attackers impersonating the CEO or the CFO, um, sending text messages, appearing to be from them, uh, saying, go purchase uh, some Absolutely. gift cards and send me the numbers and the images. So we see the social engineering, but it's going to progress even further to the point where that the attackers are no longer just, be, they're not just going to want your credentials, your passwords, your identity and your accounts. They will become digital versions of you because we're actually creating a lot of digital DNA out there that with enough data sources, you could actually really simulate a real person online digitally. And this is yeah. where it really we've gets seen it. We've seen a few. Yeah, we've seen a few with the shallow fake, you know, vishing uh, calls and, and things like that. But um, absolutely. Yeah. And this is this is the scary part of deep fakes. This is some of my my, my I, I look at predictions every year. And uh, the two areas of my predictions and scare what I'm scared about is the advancements in deep fakes and digital DNA theft. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are two things that we as a cybersecurity industry need to really start thinking about, start needing to look at how we can make sure we provide verification in everything that we see. And that's what I get worried about social media platforms mm-hmm. is that there needs to be a proper verification method. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the Twitter verification because that's probably yes. not a good example. <laughs> um, just because someone's paying doesn't mean it's really them. <laughs> and I think we all realize that unless there's a proper verification process, just because somebody has eight bucks doesn't necessarily mean they're really the person. Um, I'm seen a lot of good examples. I think, uh, you know, the uh, one with the medical uh, uh, company, uh, stating that they're going to give insulin away for free yes. and all of a sudden stuff yes. drops, all coming from fake accounts. So verification, I think, really needs to have a, a, a much more important meaning on the internet um, and how we communicate and how we verify sources. So um, what we're seeing as well is that, you know, some of the applications for NLUs in cybersecurity is around phishing detection. Um, yeah. But we have to remember where we can use NLU for defensive capabilities. Attackers can also use NLUs to create uh, attacking uh, techniques. So it's Absolutely. a two-edged sword. Um, and But we want to make sure that we're advancing much faster than they are. Um, and that's ultimately kind of one of the goals. So absolutely, in, in looking at uh, phishing uh, emails and messaging and emails, and this is not just not emails, it's all, it's SMS, it's to social media, it's, you know, Slack, it's whatever messages are coming into that we can actually use NLU to really determine, is this a real intended message? Um, and not just looking at the context of the data, but looking at all the workflow and all the context around it. So this is really kind of where it gets into very interesting. So I definitely think NLU has a good way at actually analyzing potential phishing attacks. 
But we also have to understand is that we have, have to understand how NLU can be used to create phishing attacks to make sure we create indicators of compromise to to to, to defend against Absolutely. NLU yeah. being used to create. Because phishing emails today are so authentic looking. It is getting so difficult uh, to tell the difference between a real and a fake. Uh, and especially since the first ones may not have a static payload, right? So like they've, they've, you know, they're smart. Uh, if, if I drop a link or a PDF and the first one is going to get blocked, but if I begin to build that trust, then, then I get through the, you know, email filters. You and get then, through the filters and that's the goal. That's ultimately is that the attacker, uh, one of the, one of the, the best attackers get you to ask for the, the link. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They, they come and request it from you because you're offering something to them. Um, you know, all this of these the, kind of this is the job scams, right? On LinkedIn, absolutely. They, you know, target network sys admins. Hey, I got this great job offer. They really need your experience. Oh yeah, can you? I'd be interested. Yeah. Could you send that to me? And that's that's ultimately is, is get people to make the request. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's ultimately when we think about you know we we, we bur- first build a, a set of trusts and rapport with that person, and we 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 filter them information uh, to make them to want something from us. And that's ultimately that's some of the best social engineering techniques. So that's where early, you know, we have to be careful because NLU can have a both, uh, a, a, you know, a good and bad result in, resort, in regards to phishing. Um, the other areas of use is around log parsing, is being able to analyze mm-hmm. and filter up uh, the right data that we should be looking at, especially for socks and seams, uh, to make sure that we're looking at the important information. Uh, so NLU can be used in order to look at different uh, log events and different seam information and communications and try to connect the dots uh, to make sure that we're looking at the most important things. So um, I think this is really where uh, looking at kind of much more broader because attackers want to stay stealthy and they'll mm-hmm. stay hidden as much as they possibly can. And my goal is always about forcing attackers to take a little bit more risk. And the more risk they take, the more noise they make in your network, mm-hmm. giving you a chance of detection. Um, so NLU in combination with definitely um, good defense in depth will force more ripples in the water and giving the defenders a much better chance at seeing uh, potential attacks before they turn into something of malicious, you know, catastrophic nature. Um, so definitely log parsing is another area. Um Email analysis, um, which can also be done, um, better filtering. Um, ultimately, kind of in the short term, you think about, you know, we want to make sure that we're not giving too much control over to, to this um, that has an, an, an impact, that has decision making, uh, such as what we see with, this, you know, uh, the banking and financial industry and markets. A lot of that's mm-hmm. automated. Um, so basically, you know, decisions are made within seconds. Um, but we also want to make sure that, you know, from a impact, you know, we don't all of a sudden see something that, uh, has been automated from an LNLU machine learning and ultimately AI to make a response to turn a system off. <laughs> right. Um, I think one of the, one of the things I remember in the past when I was working in data centers was that, um, the data center would start shutting systems off once the, uh, CPU and the hard disk temperatures hit a certain threshold. And uh, one way of doing a DDoS attack is to fake that sensors, mm-hmm. is to send in fake data uh, into the sensors that would basically confuse it um, and say, all of a sudden, you know, it's 36 degrees or 40 degrees, it's 50 degrees. And all of a sudden they start saying, well, it's gotten hot, let's shut them down. So we have to make sure that the sensors um, are also able to provide, you know, multiple contexts. And that's where NLUs can also get in, involved in that area. Um, but when you think about it, you know, attackers are going to abuse this um, to the point where they will be everything that we put up on social media, whether it being, you know, email messages or they get access to that. They will know more. But one of the things I do when I'm doing pen testing is looking at if you get access to an email, analyzing that person's history of emails. Mm-hmm. It will tell you a lot about a person. It will tell you even what potential passwords they might choose, um, what accounts they interact with, when they do things. Uh, to the point where I remember doing uh, taking this in, in a phishing campaign is that with using NLU with basically enough recon data, you can start predicting people's habits. You could even get to the point where you could tell when a person was going to go to the cafe and what they were going to order from the menu and who they were potentially going to meet. That's what NLU can start doing is wow. start really not understanding the language, but understanding more about us as people. Um, if it gets trained enough. 
Um, so yeah, I think we've, be- I think we've begun to yeah. see some beginnings there because a lot of the new BEC scams sort of jump midstream. So they sort of hijack the thread. They kind of ride in the middle of the conversation. So it, do- it doesn't look like a net new email that, you know, you might have your yeah. card up. But, uh, Absolutely, yeah, that's it, it injects itself. So even that predictive side from what NLU can provide, along with machine learning and deep learning, is quite scary. And I start thinking when I start thinking of that, I'm start thinking it's a digital version of the T1000, and Skynet is here <laughs> yes, in, in a yes. digital sense. Um, that's what I start thinking. It's like this T1000 could, you know, by just touching you, could become you. Um, by touching your data, um, it actually could, you know, we have the T1000 basically for those in the, who's not Terminator fans. Um, T1000 yeah, is right. one of the, the the later modern versions of the Terminator <laughs> that can actually, you know, become and uh, assimilate you. Um, so this is kind of also a bit like the Borg, I guess. Um, so how how can it all go wrong? I love the examples of when it, when it goes wrong and it really fails is that, um, you can get into a lot of those, uh, uh, like, uh, AI art and stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and picture, draw me pictures and the dolly and stuff like that. And I think I I love the one that was going around in social media by, you know, somebody asked to, to show them a picture of salmon swimming in a river. (laughs) <laughs> and rather than saying fish, which, well, it was fish, but it was fish that was basically that you would get in the store. <laughs> so it was swimming in like the river. Fillet, like fillets <laughs> of salmon. Fillet, filleted fish, half a fillet swimming up the river, um, which is quite comical. Um, you know, even the, uh, I think one of the, the, the most talked about ones was Microsoft's uh, Twitter bot was Tay. Um, I can't remember what the Tay stood for. It was something like, you know, assistant, you know, this assistant you or something mm-hmm. and um one of the things was that it was basically its data source was was everything so you could teach it <laughs> so you have yes. all of these uh attackers out there targeting the twitter bot uh microsoft's tay bot that i think within 48 hours or whatever it was it was a very short amount of time that it started becoming very racist um yes. so this is also where you open it up uh, to, you know, we think about the fifth element, um, <laughs> when basically you open up intelligence to all types of data, whether it being, you know, truth or not, um, without context, it can come to a very wrong conclusion. Um, and this is where, you know, humans need to, to still have some type of filter or formatting, uh, for that data source that goes in. So the, um, uh, the NLP side of things, the natural language processing, has to have a good filter. If you don't have a good learning, a good filter, uh, you may not get what you expect at the end. Uh, but again, you know, you have to open it up. So this is where we have to start thinking about. So for me, you know, uh, one of the best examples I've had recently was in Estonia. Um, I was involved into a lot of the policies and discussions around the EU AI Act, and that mm-hmm. was around acceptable use of artificial intelligence, which. NLU and uh, and it was NLP is all very fundamental to this uh, machine learning and uh, deep fakes and deep learning. All of those are very fundamental to the AI side of things. Um, and so I was working on that for quite a few years. So around 2017, 2018, I got involved in the Estonian government had a project called CRAT. Uh, so their AI CRAT bot uh, was one of the projects that they had. And it was really interesting because I was very pessimistic against, uh, you know, against at the beginning, just from mm-hmm. my experience. Um, but sometimes you get quite impressed and some really intelligent people can make things work. And uh, what they were able to do was this, ironically named Krat. I always find the Krat name quite ironic because in Estonia, Krat is a mythological creature that steals treasure for its its owner. And I'm going... How is the government going to sell this to people? <laughs> How are you going to sell? What is the this bot stealing treasure from people and giving it to the government? What? what how is this going to work? Especially with the country's <laughs> emphasis on digital banking. <laughs> exactly. So, so I was, I was going. I, I don't get this. I don't get why. You know. But ultimately, what it, what it really is is there. It's it's about memories. It's about you know also stealing people's memories as well. And I was I was like, this is weird. So, but ultimately, as I get more involved, and I was involved in EU AI policies and acceptable abuse, mostly from my cybersecurity expertise, uh, subject matter expert, and providing, making sure countries are doing it with um, security in mind. Because um, when governments use AI, mm-hmm. it has to be right all the time. The, moment, the one time it's wrong, trust in that system is lost. And trust between citizens and government is fundamentally so critical. Um, and trust is built. You, you have to earn trust over time. Mm-hmm. And you have to show transparency. You have to show context. 
And so this is really what's really important with AI is showing transparency, how it comes to the conclusion, um, how the algorithm got to its decision. Um, what was the context and data sources that ultimately, you know, uh, led to that conclusion? Um, so one of this is one of the important things about how decision making is happening. And this is one of the important areas for the EU AI Act, which is, you know, still in work in progress and coming into force. But um, it really sets the ground rules about how to approach with acceptable. It, we have to embrace the Internet with um let's say you know caution but accountability mm -hmm. um this is what's really important we can't we can't say no we have to look at it but we have to make sure that we do it with responsibility as well how do we make sure that this doesn't turn into a skynet um how to make sure that you know we have control um you know i think i i remember if you ever go i, I didn't, unfortunately didn't get to attend it this year which is the talent digital summit and there's a, you can go watch the online version. I definitely recommend the audience to go watch. The first session, the keynote was with Eric Smith. And Eric Smith was mm -hmm. painting this brilliant, beautiful picture um, about AI and all the possibilities. And then uh, Jan Talon, I think, was on afterwards. And Jan Talon is one of the original founders of Skype. Uh, and uh, so he was coming with a much more skepticism approach. And listening to both those two different polar kind of opinions was quite fascinating. I found it really interesting. So definitely one one area, go watch that, um, both those keynotes, because you'll get two very, one very, you know, exciting look, but another one pessimistic that we have to have, you know, some type of, uh, I think it was um, uh, CMC Cut, who was the former CIO of the Estonian government, said we need the turbo button. Um, so when AI is sourcing all of this data, that we need to control the speed that it processes <laughs> just to make sure that we have some type of control that all of a sudden, you know, we lose that data source and it starts going and getting more data and start processing and coming to uh, much more severe conclusions, especially if it gets control of kinetic outputs. Uh, we have to have some way of slowing it down and controlling it uh, overall. Uh, yeah, and I think that, that that ties back to, you know, how cybersecurity teams are are going to work with AI. It's, you know, ultimately the CISO and the CIO are going to have to answer a question about business risk and they're not going to be a computer. They're going to have to answer to a board or they're going to have to write. And so getting back to like, how did we reach this conclusion? They're going to have to be able to parse what the AI did. And it's not like, I don't, I don't know the, the black dark cube that makes all the decisions <laughs> told us to like stop production, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of those things that, you know, we've seen um, and quite recently, you know, a lot of the social media kind of uh, those unverified information that doesn't have context that we're making automated mm -hmm. decisions on. Um, and this can be very devastating. Um, so ultimately, you're absolutely right, is that when CISOs are getting into making decisions, I I think in our world that we have to be very cautious about using the term artificial intelligence in cybersecurity. Um, because in reality, I think other industries are advancing much more further with mm -hmm. AI, um, let's say like systems, um, because I think we use the term AI too broadly. Um, and I think it really goes back to, you know, I think we should have different levels of AI about what it really means. Is this, you know, going back to, I mentioned about the different phase of NLU and the Turing, mm -hmm. um, uh, approach is that you can have a very low basic level of AI that this machine shows some likeness of intelligence, but it's not well, intelligent because yeah, for, it's based I on maths. It's, it's an algorithm at the end of the day that we created. Yeah, and I think the maybe the clearest illustration of that is in most any solution today, uh, you know, I think machine learning is probably mm -hmm. table stakes because it's the only yes. way to process the amount of data at speed. But just because it's processing or analyzing on detection mm -hmm. does not mean that it is like, quote unquote, Intelligent. AI, like, yeah, it's making <laughs> decisions. I mean, not, it can, yeah. It's yeah, not going so. and studying in the afternoon uh, <laughs> to <laughs> learn something new. That right. algorithm is fixed and set. It has to be yeah. taught and changed. Um, so, I, you know, in, in the reality is that there is certain areas I've seen NASA doing the uh, asteroid uh, detection. So they're putting mm -hmm. a lot of data in to see all the asteroids when a potential, you know, asteroid will, will collide with the Earth. So there's a lot of areas where absolutely they are advancing very quickly. But in cybersecurity, the reality is we're really much more, I think, AI is more advanced automation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, IBM's term is augmented intelligence, which I think is a good term. Yeah. Because ultimately that's saying it's assisted intelligence. It's helping us make decisions. 
Um, and it's not really intelligent by itself, but it's providing us much faster information, um, a lot more context that we humans would not be able to process at that speed. Um, but yeah, I think, we, I think, yeah, for example, you know, it was commonly feared that AI was going to replace doctors. And I think the the more realistic is that it will actually take the diagnostic workload off of doctors correct. so that the doctors can then do what they're supposed focus to on, do, yeah. which is provide focus on the care. remediation, the rehabilitation, yeah. focus on, on fixing um, mm-hmm. rather than diagnosing. And I think that's the same thing that we can do in cybersecurity is that we can quickly diagnose threats. And uh, potentially we might be able to automate some of the remediation, uh, whether it being, you know, if it was, let's say, take the health scenario that mm. you can quickly diagnose. And as a result of this diagnosis, the basically answer is a pill. Um, yep. And you can go get a prescription. That whole process can be automated. But when you get into much more things where a surgery or some type of uh, doctor interventions required, um, that's where you want to make sure that there's human oversight, human intervention. And the same when it comes to cybersecurity automation of threats. Um, we talk about XDR. We talk about all of this you know, remediation side of things and detection. And there's certain things that, yes, we can automate. There's basically a threat. There's a patch existing. Let's deploy the patch. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's automate that entire process. Uh, but there's a threat, and we have no remediation for that. We need to make a configuration change in order to harden that system. That's where human intervention. But we have to know that the threat exists in order to make the reaction. Um, so absolutely, it will make much more efficient on resources. It will change the workload that we focus on and prioritize, which is basically tinkering and and and, and modifying mm-hmm. and augmenting the system to make sure it becomes resilient to cyber attacks versus the detection side. I think the detection side will be automated using a lot of this technology, um, but it's the remediation side where we will start focusing on more of the human intervention sides. Um, but some of it, yes, some of it can be automated, You know, such as this machine is vulnerable to a patch, let's patch it. Um, yeah. you know, I, also, I also think about um, you know the, the MITRE attack uh, story, which is you may also make the decision that you, you've closed the doors where it can't move laterally, mm-hmm. but you, you want to watch it. Because you're trying to document the tactics. Absolutely. So can, the learning you know, side of it. Yeah. yeah. The indicators of compromise and, and really learning. This is always, I, I, I as a, you know, working security, I can never make that decision. I always leave it to the business <laughs> to make those yes. decisions because it gets into where, you know, if data is leaving the organization or they have access to privileged accounts, mm-hmm. uh, leaving that access open um, can be very catastrophic, damaging. So, yeah. Um, the business will always have to decide, is this system that they have access to sensitive enough? Can we watch and learn? And you have to make that decision very quickly because uh, you, you can't wait for days. So absolutely, I think that we can use a lot of this automation learning capability and NLUs in that area to say, here's here's a, a fingerprint off this particular tech path and tech method. Let's quickly share it with all organizations mm-hmm. because we need to make sure that other organizations We'll learn about this fast as, as possible and put the mitigation controls in place. So this gets into where threat intelligence and threat intelligence sharing um, using NLUs and specific indicators of compromise and creating YAML rules. You know, I'd mm-hmm. love it to be automated in creating YAML rules, um, but getting that back into the rest of the organizations so we can all be defended together. Uh, because this is a world where cybersecurity is not a one you know, organization shop and it's not a one country shop. It's something that we all need to work together. We all need to collaborate. Um, and that's how we defend together. Um, we need to communicate. We need to share. We need to learn. Uh, and we need intelligence as quickly as possible. Um, so putting that into systems, I think, is great. Um, and providing human oversight uh, is critical to make sure that you know it's not uh, doing damage. I've seen incidents response doing more damage than the incident itself. Mm. Uh, and that's something we always have to be cautious. And I've seen a, um, a major bank responding to DDoS attack by bringing up the backup system. Um, and the backup system uh, was online. The production system was intermittent. And then they had two transactions going through both systems, um, mm-hmm. two versions of the truth. And the uh, the impact was they needed to maintain those two financial systems for the next financial year. And doing that was a major cost of maintaining two systems yep. versus one. So how you respond uh, can also you know, be quite damaging. And it's always important to make sure you respond. Every yeah. attack has its different types of impacts. And the impact of the organization, you have to respond in the right way. Yeah. 
Well, uh, Joseph, I think that's a, a good place to tie it off. I want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your afternoon Talon time. Uh, <laughs> this was, yeah, I think I want to steer us away from dystopian buzzword abuse around <laughs> AIML. And, and maybe we get to a place where these technologies are helping reduce the load on the sock so that they can make uh, better, faster decisions and not Absolutely. just be you know, faced with more alerts. It's not, we don't need more alerts. (laughs) No, the noise, the noise is what creates the problem. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have too much of it. And it gets to the point when you overload uh, SOC analysis, uh, analysts, they can't consume the data. So we have to make sure that we have a better way of filtering the noise and looking at what's more important in that data set. And that's where this, that's where and I'll use automation um, and augmented or system intelligence can definitely play a part and help, you know, ultimately, I will say that the most important resource in this world, uh, we talk about, you know, oil and we talk about cryptocurrency and we talk about data. I hear so many times at conferences that data is the, you know, the new oil mm-hmm. and um, it's the most valuable asset in the world. It's not. None of, none of those are. Those are kind of let's say, uh, necessities, it's, it's, it's things that we want, but it's not mm-hmm. the most valuable thing. The most valuable thing in the world is time. Yep. You and I all have limited time in this world. Uh, it's not infinite. I don't think we're going to create a, you know, a time machine or a, uh, you, know, uh, you know, make me young again machine in the near future. So we all have a limited amount of time. And it's what we can use with the technology around us to reduce waste of time. And NLUs is definitely going to help that. That's what's going to help the, the foundation of this helps us reduce waste of time. And that's mm-hmm. what makes me excited, especially when it comes to cybersecurity, is that it allows me and you to focus on the things that matter, the things that we can make differences in the organization and take away those mundane routine things that you know most people don't enjoy doing. Right. Um, <laughs> and let us focus on the things that we can do. Um, so time is the most valuable resource and any technology you put in place should be prioritizing around reducing waste of time. That's one of the metrics that you should be measuring. And definitely this, you know, AI, was it machine learning, NLUs can all play a part there. Um, so definitely, you know, should be areas that everyone, everyone should be looking at to see how they can take advantage uh, and, and, and use it with responsibility is the key thing. Perfect. Well, thank you again for the time. And uh, I hope we get to do it again soon. That's it for First Watch today. Many thanks to my guest, Joseph Carson. To hear more interviews with security leaders and more spotlight episodes on security newcomers, subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber with original music by Matias Cefaletti and production help from Jamil Moffey. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong.